Well, we are continuing our series in Joshua, and our text this morning is going to be Joshua chapters 15 through 17. No, I'm not going to read all three chapters, although some have expressed their disappointment in not hearing me try to pronounce all the different names in these chapters. For instance, the 120 or so city names in chapter 15. But we are going to work through the um, contents of these chapters. So I just want to begin by talking about zeal. So zeal means to be stirred up with enthusiasm and eagerness for something. Now, zeal can be misguided. And when it is misguided, it can be very destructive. Uh, I think, for instance, of the Apostle Paul describing his own zeal as a Pharisee before his conversion in Galatians 1.14. He said, And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. In other words, Paul was extremely zealous but for the wrong religion. And it led him to persecute the church of Jesus Christ. But zeal can also be directed toward good ends. And when it is, it can be incredibly productive. So one thinks, for instance, of Jesus' zeal for his father's house, which led him to drive out the money changers from the temple. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, Peter said that Christ redeemed us, quote, to be a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. In other words, it is a virtue to be stirred up with enthusiasm and eagerness to honor God through good works as believers. Indeed, we should also add to this that complacency, which would be one way to describe the opposite of zeal, is unbecoming of a Christian. A Christian who is a spiritual couch potato, unmotivated to do anything good for God and for his honor, is in an unhealthy spiritual condition. Such a person ought to hear the Lord's rebuke in Revelation 3.19 directed to them. Where he said, to those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Now we are continuing to work through the section in the book of Joshua where the Lord divides up the land of Canaan between the twelve tribes in chapters 13 through 21. And today we're going to be focusing in on chapters 15 through 17 where the Lord designates portions of Canaan to the tribes of Judah and Joseph. Now the process of God giving the land of Canaan to Israel as an inheritance in chapters 13 through 21, it has some overarching lessons and I've already touched on that at the beginning of the section and I'm going to touch on it again at the end. But there are many smaller lessons which emerge along the way. 
And one of the smaller lessons which emerges here in chapters 15 through 17 pertains to this matter of zeal. In these three chapters, we are going to see contrasting examples of zeal on the one hand and complacency on the other. On the part of these two tribes with respect to the portions which God had given them in the promised land. And as we see these contrasting examples of zeal and complacency, it's going to be instructive to us as believers today. So let's walk through these chapters together and reflect upon the lessons that they teach us. Now, I just want you to remember at the beginning here that chapters 13 all the way through chapter 19 are the section of the book where we are told how this conquered territory was divided up between the 12 tribes. And we already saw that two and a half tribes were given the portion of land uh, that Israel had conquered on the east side of the Jordan, often called the Transjordan region. And that's covered in chapter 13. Then in chapters 15 through 19 we are going to see the Lord dividing up the land of Canaan on the west side of the Jordan to the remaining nine and a half tribes. And how he did this was by a process called casting lots. The high priest would cast lots into his lap. The Lord would direct how the lots fell and thereby God would reveal his will on certain matters to his people. And that's how they... That's how the Lord showed the tribes how the land was to be divided up. Now, the first tribe to be allotted a portion in the land was the tribe of Judah. And not only were they the first tribe to be allotted territory, but the text here spends the most time describing their inheritance. So chapter 15 is devoted to Judah's portion. And then chapters 16 and 17 is devoted to talking about Joseph's portion in Canaan. But chapter 15 is more than twice as long as chapters 16 and 17 put together. So Judah's portion is treated at much greater length than that of Joseph, and the rest of the tribes get even less attention. Now, the account of Judah's allotted inheritance here is not only longer, it's also more comprehensive than that of the other tribes. It really unfolds in three parts as you look at the text. So first, we see that the territory given to Judah by God is laid out for us in chapter 15, verses 1 through 12. Reading that description is like having a drone and traveling along a boundary marker until you go around the north, south, east, and west boundary of the territory that God was giving to the tribe of Judah. But since we know nothing about that region, a map is going to be helpful for us to visualize it. So if you could pull up the first slide there on the screen. So you can see that large yellow section at the bottom. It's labeled Judah, and that's the territory whose boundaries are being described here 
in verses 1 through 12 of our text. And you can see just by looking at the map that Judah's portion is uh, quite large. In fact, it's obviously the larger portion um, compared to any of the other tribes in Israel. Although you feel sort of bad that Simeon was plopped right into the middle of Judah. Well, you can go ahead and pull down that map. The second part of this chapter is in verses 13 through 19. And if you look at the text there, what you'll see is a story, a story about an individual member of the tribe of Judah named Caleb. And indeed, this is actually a continuation of a story about Caleb, which began back in chapter 13. Uh, There... Caleb had responded to a request or had requested of Joshua that he give him a portion of land in Canaan, specifically that surrounded a city called Cariath Arba. That just simply meant the city of Arba. And Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. And the Anakim were a lineage of mighty warriors known particularly for their abnormal size. And it was the Anakim whom the ten spies had referred to when they discouraged Israel from taking the land back in Numbers chapter 13. So Caleb, who was one of the spies that said, no, we should go up and take that land, he specifically requested this territory where the Anakim lived so that he might prove that God was indeed able to drive them out just as he had promised. And now in our text, verses 13 and 14 of chapter 15, tell us how he did it. So you see it says, verse 13, According to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, He gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, a portion among the people of Judah, Cariath Arba, that is Hebron. Arba was the father of Anak. And Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Sheshai, Ahimon, Talmai, the descendants of Anak. But then we see that the story continues in verses 15 through 19. And there it says this. And he went up from there against the inhabitants of Debir. Now the name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, Whoever strikes Kiriath Sefer and captures it, to him I will give Aksa my daughter as wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, captured it. And he gave him Aksa his daughter as wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she got off her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have given me the land of Negev, give me also springs of water. And he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Now here we see that Caleb did not stop after conquering Cariath Arba, but proceeded to conquer another city called Cariath Sefer as well. And perhaps because conquering this city was such a daunting task, Caleb provided this remarkable incentive that he would give his daughter, Aksa, in marriage to the man who successfully completed this task. So his nephew, Othniel, 
did just that, and Caleb gave him Oxa as his wife. But what we see is that Oxa, the daughter of Caleb, she is eager to receive a particular field in the land, and she urges Othniel to ask her father for it, which he apparently does. And it's interesting, that phrase that's translated, she urged him. It's very strong. In fact, usually it's used in sort of a negative way, almost coercion or alluring. She had to have this field, and she wouldn't take no for an answer. But then she didn't stop there, because apparently the field she requested was in a region called the Negev, which when you hear that word, the Negev, think wilderness, an arid place. And so in verse 19, she took the initiative to approach her father personally and to say, you've given me this field, but it's in the wilderness, in the desert where there is no water. So could you please give me springs to water this land? And Caleb, of course, obliged her again. Now, what we see in this story is three people, Caleb, first of all, Othniel, second of all, and Aksa, third of all who are zealous to obtain their portion in the land of Canaan. Caleb, he doesn't wait to be allotted a portion in the land. He takes initiative to go to Joshua and ask him to give him a specific portion of it. And his daughter, Aksa, turns around and does the same thing to him. And then both Caleb and his nephew, Othniel, they perform great feats of courage to clear out the Canaanites from their land so that they might take full possession of it. So do you see, these three figures embody this enthusiasm, this eagerness, this zeal to possess the land which God had promised to them. And they showed it by their actions. The third and final part of chapter 15 is there in verses 20 through 63. And here we see a list of all the cities that were in the territory allotted to Judah. Now, as you read through this list, uh, you're not meant to simply be bored and ask when it will be over. As you read through the list, you're supposed to be increasingly amazed at the staggering number of the cities in Judah's territory for various exegetical reasons, it's actually difficult to nail down the precise total with certainty, but it's about 120, maybe 122, depending upon how you count them, cities. Now, this kind of city list, it's not provided for every tribe's territory, but when there is a city list provided for a tribe, it's nowhere near this list. And this spoke to the sheer size of the territory allotted to Judah in comparison to the other tribes. In fact, I think we ought to pause here and just point something out. We have mentioned a number of things about this chapter, chapter 15, which indicate the prominence of Judah among the 12 tribes. They are allotted their inheritance first out of all the tribes, even though Judah was actually Jacob's fourth son. The portion of land that they're given as you saw on the map, was far bigger than any of the other tribes received. And the description of these things in the text is longer and more comprehensive than that of the other tribes. So 
you can't help when you're reading this text but say, there's clearly an emphasis being placed upon the prominence of the tribe of Judah among the tribes of Israel. In fact, we ought just to recognize that that theme is not contained just to this text, is it? Actually, what we're seeing here is a broader theme that runs actually throughout the whole Old Testament. For instance, when you go back to the book of Genesis, by the time you get to the end of the book of Genesis, you see that Judah has risen to a position of prominence among the 12 sons of Jacob. Indeed, there's a whole chapter in Genesis, chapter 38, which is designated mysteriously to telling you the strange story of how Judah's twin sons, Zerah and Perez, were born. None of the other uh, men have that type of thing happen. And when Jacob, at the very end of Genesis, prophesied concerning each of his sons and their future descendants, his prophecy concerning Judah emerges as the longest and the most remarkable. Later on, After the exodus, when Israel, the nation, comes out of Egypt and they begin traveling uh, with the Lord leading the way before them through the wilderness, when you see the numbers of the tribes given, well, Judah is now the largest of the tribes. And when you see the position that each were given in the line as they traveled, guess who was first? The tribe of Judah. Now that takes us kind of up to the book of Joshua, but this preeminence of Judah continues after the book of Joshua as well. For instance, uh, when you get into the book of Ruth, just a couple books away, well, the whole book centers around the tribe of Judah. And of course, First and Second Samuel, what are they all about? Well, there's the matter of Saul, but, but after that, it's all about the rise of David out of the tribe of Judah to become Israel's first and greatest, well, greatest king. And after that, well, kings and chronicles, they center around the rise and fall of the Davidic dynasty and the kingdom of Judah. And then, of course, after that in your Bible, all of the prophets, well, they spoke of a day when God would raise up another king out of the tribe of Judah. A scepter out of that tribe would come who would be like David, only better. And he, of course, is God's ultimate anointed king. In Hebrew, anointed one is Messiah, the one who would accomplish this full and final salvation of God's people and whose kingdom would be established over the entire earth forever. And so you see, As we sit in our text, chapter 15, and we see the the prominence placed upon the tribe of Judah in this section of Joshua, where the Lord divides up the land between the 12 tribes, well, we ought to be conscious of the fact that what we are observing here is a theme which runs throughout the Old Testament and ultimately culminates in the arrival of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, in the New Testament. In other words, you could put it this way. The prominence of the tribe of Judah in Joshua 15 is like an early indicator that this tribe would be important because as the story unfolds, it would be the one out of which God would raise up a king, the Messiah, to save his people, to save all 
Jew and Gentile, who would believe in him from the power and penalty of their sins. Or let me put it another way. The prominence of Judah in Joshua 15 points you forward as a Bible reader to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Something that we now see as we read Joshua 15 in light of the fuller revelation of the New Testament. So praise God for that. You know, surely Paul was right when he said, all scripture is God-breathed. Here we see the oneness of this book, that it had a divine author, that it holds together and coheres, that there is this single storyline which runs through it and how it comes to its culmination in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. But, Before we move on from chapter 15, we have to also take note of that last verse in the chapter, verse 63, which concludes the treatment of Judah's allotted inheritance on a surprisingly negative note, right? Positive, 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 negative. There it says, But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. Now, I want to clarify that when the text says that Judah could not drive out the Jebusites from Jerusalem, I do not think it can mean that they could not do so at all. Why? Because that would contradict what the Lord had been saying repeatedly, that he would fight for them, that he would drive out the inhabitants of the land, and that they were to do that very thing. I think, rather, what it means is that they couldn't do so immediately. They couldn't do so right away. And that too was something that God predicted would happen. It would be little by little. It would take some time. But what we see is that instead of persevering until they were able to drive out the Canaanites from Jerusalem, they simply gave up. They became complacent, letting the Jebusites live among them rather than taking full possession of their inheritance. Now this, of course, is exactly what the Lord had repeatedly commanded Israel not to do, warning them soberly that any Canaanites left in the land would eventually become their downfall as a nation by leading them into idolatry. So this is a very foreboding note to the end, bringing this account of Judah's inheritance to an end. Now the next part of the text, chapters 16 and 17. Now, these chapters describe the portion allotted to the tribe of Joseph. That's Jacob's 11th son. So, chapter 16, if you look at the text there, it opens by saying this. The allotment of the people of Joseph went. And then you have the drone again, tracing the boundaries of Joseph's inheritance in Canaan. And then... It described the territory there in verses 1 through 3. Now, any reader of the Old Testament is going to know that back in Genesis 48, Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, blessed his son Joseph with a double portion among his sons. And he did that by taking Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and adopting him as his own son. So now instead of 12 sons, he has 13 sons. And two of them belong to Joseph. 
So he has a double portion among the tribes. And so as you read the Old Testament over time, what you see is not Joseph mentioned, but his sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, as having become two full tribes in Israel. Now this is why, after describing all the territory allotted to Joseph in verses 1 through 4, the author then says in verse 4, do you see it? The people of Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim, received their inheritance. And then the rest of chapters 16 and 17, they break down the part of the territory that was allotted to Joseph um, that is given to each of those two tribes individually. So first, chapter 16. Chapter 16 is all about a frame. So 16 verses 5 through 9, we have a description of the territory allotted to the tribe of Ephraim. And again, because you're unfamiliar with these place names, um, let me show you a little map that will help you kind of visualize what this is. Now, the green section labeled Ephraim, that's the portion of the land being described in our text, verses 5 through 9. That's the portion that God allotted to Ephraim as an inheritance. So you can see it there in reference to Judah below it and Manasseh's above it. So let's take the map down. This is followed by another ominous note. Verse 10, there it says, However, they, Ephraim, did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. Now here again we see a note that the tribe of Ephraim, just like Judah, did not drive out the Canaanites from their territory. And notice that the phrase, they did not drive out the Canaanites, that makes very clear that what we have here is a case of willful neglect. They simply didn't bother to do so. After all, it's hard. And the fact that the Canaanites are said to be forced labor instead of being driven out, that also makes you wonder whether the motivation of Ephraim for not driving them out was more than just laziness. So it might have been that, but it might also have been greed. Why drive them out, in other words, when we could make them serve us? Of course, the problem with that was it was God who had told them to drive out the Canaanites. And that was a matter both of their good and his glory. You see, by letting these Canaanites live among them, the tribe of Ephraim was not only refusing to execute God's sentence of death upon the Canaanites for their sins. After all, Israel was to be an instrument of God's judgment upon the Canaanites. But they were also endangering the future of the nation because these Canaanites would become, as Moses had warned, thorns in their side, leading them astray eventually into idolatry. So this was a terrible sin on the part of Ephraim, described in chapter 16, verse 10. And it, again, it bode very ill for the nation of Israel going forward. Now, second and finally, chapter 17 describes the inheritance allotted to the tribe of Manasseh, the other son of Joseph. And this section is a bit more complex. It, again, has three parts to it. So first, in chapter 17, verses 1 and 2, if you look at that text, the author lists the clans of Manasseh. 
And he says that the clan of Machur, who was Manasseh's firstborn son, Machur, or Machur, inherited lands east of Jordan in the Transjordan region, while the rest of the clans of Manasseh inherited land inside Canaan proper. Then, verses 3 through 6, it tells us about a particular family in the tribe of Manasseh whose portion in the land was going to be inherited by daughters because the head of the clan, a man named Zelophehad, so you mothers, if you have another child, think about that name. It's a good one. Actually, that might be a little awkward, but this man Zelophehad, who apparently was a clan head in Manasseh, had no sons. And so the daughters of Zelophehad requested to inherit the family inheritance um, in, rather than having it go to other, other clans. So look at the text. It says, Now Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, had no sons but only daughters. And these are the names of, of his daughters. Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah. Some of you teen girls are going, oh my, those are ugly names. Not all of them. They approached Eliezer, the priest, and Joshua, the son of Nun, and the leaders, and said this, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance along with our brothers. So, according to the mouth of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among the brothers of their father. Thus there fell to Manasseh ten portions, besides the land of Gilead and Bashan, which is on the other side of the Jordan, because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance along with the sons. Now, it's important to realize that you think, well, this is a really random story. But actually, Zelophehad and his five daughters are not new to the storyline of the Old Testament. Um, the story here in Joshua 17 is actually a continuation of a story which had already begun in the book of Numbers. You know, those, that book with so many white pages, because you rarely go there. In Numbers 27, the five daughters of Zelophehad had gone to Moses, and they had appealed to Moses to give them their father's portion of Canaan because he had no sons, and otherwise the, the, his father's portion would be lost and distributed to other clans. And so Moses inquired of the Lord, and the Lord said, The daughters of Zelophehad are right. And so Moses agreed to their request. Then in Numbers 36, what we see is that the daughters of Zelophehad come back, except this time the tribal heads in Manasseh are saying, Wait a second. What about when the daughters of Zelophehad get married? Then their husbands will, in, inherit, will take the inheritance. And so the Lord said, you're right. The daughters of Zelophehad must marry within the clan. So that, again, the, in, the integrity of that clan's inheritance would remain intact. So all of this is before they actually get to Canaan. And now here in Joshua 17, 3 through 6, is the continuation and the conclusion of this story. The daughters of Zelophehad, they go to Joshua and they remind him what had been agreed upon back in Numbers 27 and Numbers 36. And Joshua follows through on this agreement by giving them their father's territory in the land. Now, let me just say, there is a sense, of course, in which this story is included to clarify the details of Manasseh's inheritance. But that's not all it's about. 
It's also providing us with another example, in addition to that of Caleb and Othniel and Aksa, of Israelites who were zealous for the inheritance God had promised them. The daughters of Zelophehad were not complacent about their inheritance. Rather, they are enthusiastic. They are eager to take possession of the land that God had promised to their father. They would not rest until the matter is settled. They went back again and again. Now next, the territory allotted to Manasseh in Canaan is described in chapter 17, verses 7 through 11. Now, once again, I'm just going to show you a map of the territory that's described so you can visualize it. So if you can bring up the third map there. All right, now, you can't see it super well, but there are two territories that are outlined in purple, and they're labeled, you see them, Manasseh. So the, the territory of Manasseh on the right side of your screen, I think it's your right. Um, is that right? Left side of your screen. Uh, that is the Transjordan region. So half the tribe of Manasseh inherited over there. And then on the other side of the Jordan, next to the Mediterranean Sea, you see the other part of Manasseh's inheritance inside the land of Canaan that was inherited by the other half of the tribe of Manasseh. Okay, now you can take that map down. But in that map, you could see, wow, This is the second largest inheritance given to any of the tribes. Only Judah's is bigger. Indeed, what we're seeing here is the fact that the tribes of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, were really treated as coming in second place behind Judah in terms of prominence and greatness. And this, of course, is understandable. It goes back to the blessing that God pronounced upon Joseph for his faith and obedience uh, to the family and to God. Now, sadly, though, the account of Manasseh's inheritance in chapter 17, it really ends on a very negative note, doesn't it? Let's read what it says in verses 12 through 18. It says this, Yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Now, when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. Then the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance, although I am a numerous people, since all along the Lord has blessed me? And Joshua said to them, If you are a numerous people, go up for yourselves to the forest, and there clear ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. The people of Judah said, The hill country is not enough for us. Yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plains have chariots of iron, both those in Bethshean and its villages and those in the valley of Jezreel. And Joshua said in the house, or to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, You are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders. You shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots. That just like the tribes of Judah and Ephraim, Manasseh did not completely drive out the Canaanites from living in their territory. And at first it was because they were unable to do so right away. The Canaanites had these chariots of iron in the valley. 
But even though they eventually became powerful enough to drive them out, they didn't do it. They chose instead to put them to forced labor. And then to make things worse, you see their dialogue with Joshua and you're just slapping your forehead because they're complaining. The Canaanites are too powerful for us. We can't drive them out. And you're hearing once again echoes of you know, the words of those unbelieving spies back in Numbers 14. And how the Israelites rebelled against God because the Canaanites were too strong and, and they just, he just led them out in the desert to die. So these Israelites from Manasseh, they sound like those original Israelites who had refused to believe that God would fulfill his promise and would not go up to take the land. They were not zealous to take possession of the land which God had allotted to them. Like Caleb, like Othniel had been. Instead, They're complacent about their inheritance. They're unwilling to do what was necessary to take possession of it. Why? Well, it seems to reflect in their heart a lack of trust in God. They talk about how strong the Canaanites are. And they don't mention how how strong God is. They don't seem to trust that God would fight for them anymore. Instead, what they do is they ask Joshua to give them more of the land that had already been conquered. You see, this is just a pathetic display of a lack of zeal for the honor of God. And it was fueled by unbelief in their heart. And notice in the text, it stands in stark contrast to Joshua. Joshua has this faith-fueled exhortation. Hey, trust in God. Go take that possession. You will take it. Take your possession to its farthest borders. I don't care if they have chariots of iron. I don't care if they're strong. right? It's a call to trust in God. But we know that Joshua's time is drawing to an end. And Manasseh's complacency is becoming the new trend in Israel. And of course, it did not bode well for the nation going forward. So we've walked through these three chapters. Now, let's just consider what, does, what do they have to teach us today? And I mentioned this before, but let me say it again. This entire section in which God allots to the 12 tribes their portion in the land of, Israel, or of Canaan, that has an overarching point to it, which I've mentioned before briefly, and I will, I will touch on again at the end. But there are some secondary lessons which we're learning along the way as we move through this passage in Joshua. Today, as we focus on chapters 15 through 17, I think there's one main lesson that really emerges. And I think what we see is it's fairly clear that there's this contrast being presented to us between some within Israel, like Caleb and Othniel and Aksa and the daughters of Zelophehad, who are zealous to take possession of this inheritance that God has allotted to them. And that is contrasted with this repeated complacency on the part of the tribes as a whole of Judah and of Joseph to drive out the remaining Canaanites to take full possession of their inheritance. So on the one hand, the zeal of the few is fueled by a trust in God. The Lord will be with us. He will fight for us. And they show their eagerness to honor him, to obey him through their obedience. On the other hand, The complacency of the majority was fueled by an unbelief in God. They operate based upon what they see with their eyes rather than 
by trust and faith in the invisible God who had brought them this far. And this would, this complacency, which of course led to disobedience, would eventually result in the descent of the nation into the type of chaos and oppression which you see in the next book, the book of Judges. Now, of course, truth be told, right? We can all see a mixture of both of these in our own hearts as believers. On the one hand, we can all find the same sort of complacency toward God in our own hearts, which is rooted in unbelief and results in disobedience. You know, the Apostle Paul just made it so clear. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this is actually why we so desperately needed God to raise up a Savior out of the tribe of Judah, the the God-man, Jesus Christ, who was perfectly zealous for the honor of his Father. And that led him to perfectly obey God unto death. So here we have, in the midst of our own failure, Jesus Christ put before us in the Scriptures as the Lion of the tribe of Judah who has done what we have failed to do, who has defeated sin and rescued us from death by fulfilling all God's commands perfectly on our behalf and taking our inheritance for us by dying on the sin, for our sins upon the cross, rising again to secure our vindication and our eternal life for us. And so now we hear that gospel message. Everyone who will simply believe in him, repenting of their sins, trusting in what he has done on our behalf, will be saved from the punishment we deserve for our sins and corruptions. This is what Acts 2.21 says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Quoting the words of the ancient prophet. So we see in the failures of the tribes, something of our own failure as sinners. And we see that our hope is not our own zeal leading to perfect obedience to the Lord, but our hope is in the zeal of the Lord Jesus Christ, which led him to obey God perfectly on on our behalf. So if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you know, Christianity isn't about, hey, do better. It's about confess your unbelief, confess your disobedience to God, cry out to Jesus to save you through his perfect obedience on your behalf. And believer, as you see your own complacency toward God, that leads often to disobedience in your life. Look to Jesus, whose zealous obedience is your hope for forgiveness and for right standing With God. But at the same time, believer, the Holy Spirit of God, the very Spirit of Jesus Christ, has been sent into our lives. And so He indwells our hearts. He is renewing us into the image of Christ. And so, as these figures are put before our eyes this morning in Scripture, Caleb and Othniel and Oxa and the daughters of Zelophehad as models of zeal for the honor of God, which leads them to obedience, well, they're put before us to remind us of the type of zeal which 
the people of God and dwelt by the Spirit of God now ought to have for him and for his will. They knew God by faith. They knew how he had rescued them out of Egypt and how he had brought them into this land out of his own faithfulness to his ancient promise to Abraham. So they trusted that he would enable them to take full possession of their inheritance and they stepped out in obedience. Well, in the same way, believer, you know who God is if you're a true believer. Because you have heard of his mighty acts in history to save you from sin and death and the devil through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. And you know how good he has been to you, justifying you and adopting you and sanctifying you. Why? Because you cry out to him even now by the spirit of adoption, saying, Abba, Father. So now, by the spirit, trust him to give you strength, to give you victory, Strive to obey him in this life, fighting sin, enduring trials, using your gifts in the church, proclaiming the gospel to those around you, holding fast to the gospel until you finally take possession of your eternal inheritance. Believer, this is what you've been redeemed for. To be a people for his own possession who are zealous for good work. So put off complacency by the strength which God supplies. You know, don't let laziness or unbelief or even greed and lust for the things of this world make you into a spiritual couch potato, complacent and useless. Join the ranks of Caleb and Othniel and Oxa and these five daughters of Zelophehad who are eager for all that God has promised and step out in obedience to take possession of it. Well, in conclusion, as we reflect upon Joshua 15 through 17, we're reminded of the fact that just as zeal for God consumed our king so that he accomplished our salvation through his perfect obedience, well, so it ought to be with us that zeal for God as his redeemed people would now fill us, even as he has put his own spirit within us. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you of, for how, as this ancient psalmist said, it is a lamp to our feet, a light into our path. We thank you that it shows us not only the grace of redemption through Jesus Christ, but how it, the spirit enables us And so we pray that we would be affected by your word today. We pray that where we have been complacent in our life, you would fill us with a renewed zeal this morning to do your will for your honor. And we pray that you would use your word in this way, wash us with it, sanctify us by your truth for your glory, because we are your redeemed people who are your own possession. You've called us to be zealous for good works. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.